Well, good morning, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. That was that was average. Hello, everyone. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to see you. Those of you, you're now in my vocabulary. You're now called off the wall people. These people right here. I just fa- discovered that this week. I was talking to Jeff, and those of you who are new here, Jeff is the lead pastor here. He was describing somebody that sits in the second seat off the wall, and I thought off the wall. That's funny. That's how I'm not going to refer because I don't really like this wall. But you're now the off-the-wall people. Now, you're wondering if you're the second seat person. Is he talking about you? Yes and yes. Yes. Actually, I got, um, um, I got my training wheels off this week because Jeff uh, said to me, now, you know, I've been speaking here once a month for over a year. And Jeff said, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go check out some other churches this weekend and try to learn what other churches are doing. Do you think you can, you're okay on your own? And he was serious on that, okay? Now, this is a guy I've known since he was in ninth grade, you know. And uh, I said, Jeff, I think I'm, you know. So nobody die in this service, all right? Just something, just, you know. And actually, just so you know, that when Jeff talks about you, there are many times Jeff will talk about you and he'll actually begin to cry. I mean, he loves, he loves you. And he loves this church in the last, what, eight or nine months that he has been here. God has done a great work in, um, in his life. And as because I'm a big fan of Jeff's, I've been watching as an older brother, maybe even a dad figure in his life, that um, the way you have loved him back. And it's really, really a beautiful thing. And just, just know, I mean, he really, really does love you. He, he loves you way more than I do. So um, anyway, we're in this uh, series called The Outsider's Guide to Jesus, and we're actually working our way through the book of Luke. I was here five weeks ago when we started the series. We were in chapter one. Five weeks later, we're still in chapter one. So we're not moving through it fast. Um, I think we'll finish the, through the book of Luke in the fall of 2020. So um, actually, next week we jump into chapter two, which is the birth of Jesus, and we move that into the Christmas season. Can you believe we're already? I mean, you don't want to hear it. Last weekend, my wife and I were in Palm Desert. I was speaking there, and after church, we went out to lunch. And I don't know if it's because it was like Seniorville, where we were, or what, but Christmas songs were being played in the restaurant. God rest ye merry gentle, which is, I, I sang three songs. Uh, my wife is right here. She'll tell you. When I bust through the house, this is a field's tradition. I bust through the door after work. I sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen, mostly when a man loves a woman. That's my go-to song. The other one, when the kids are not around, is Rod Stewart classic. If you think I'm sexy and you want my... So my wife is very excited that we're now into the God Rest You Married Gentlemen season. So that is, I wish I was lying. That is all very true. Right, dear? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, but in addition to... Um, you know, the Christmas conversation. There's been other conversations that have been happening. And uh, Kathy and I spoke at a marriage retreat last weekend. Then I spoke, stayed at that church and spoke there. And then we went away for 24 hours and we were just talking. And as we talked about our lives and people's lives, we began to have conversations about what many of our friends are actually going through. And there are interesting conversations around faith and around personal pain. And usually when it's happening in my life, it's a good indication that it's happening in your life. As a matter of fact, this week I was just making a list of conversations that I've had that relate to pain 
and faith. One gal told me that a um, good friend of ours, they, they can't get pregnant. And she said, I feel like my dreams are being quenched. Another person said, my mom wasn't healed, and I prayed like never before. Two nights ago on Friday night, I was supposed to speak at a benefit where they were raising money for a family going through a lot of medical issues here in South County, and the benefit was canceled because the the man died last week. Um, A woman that we know died last week, 47 years old, leaving four kids under the age of 18 and a a wonderful husband. Had another conversation with a girl in her house that she said, I'm in my 30s, not married, and the window seems to be closing. A buddy of mine that I mountain bike with said, I'm a faithful Christian. I'm trying to do business in an honorable, God-honoring way, and I'm probably going to lose my business. Another friend moving out of California because they've lost their house and they can't make it all work. And then we're all connected with people who have physical pains. Last Friday, couldn't go to the hospital because we were heading out to the desert, but one of my dear friends is having surgery, and so they came over to our house and uh, 6 in the morning. I'm not a morning person. 6 in the morning to pray for them. Uh, he has cancer on his kidney, and uh, they were removing that on, on Friday, and so they were there that, that morning. We were praying, and after we prayed, um, <laughs> his daughter's actually right here, um, said, Doug, that was really nice of you to pray, um, but you prayed for his liver. Okay, it's, it's actually his kidney. So the good news is God answered my prayer because his liver's fine. Okay, it's just fine. Now, uh, here, you know, this is just the list. These are just my friends. And some of you are like, Doug, I'm really glad I'm not your friend. Okay, because that's, that's just kind of an ugly list. Or, you know, hey, get some, some new friends. But in essence, here's what my friends are, are saying. They're saying, um, God, if you're really here, how can this be? These are the conversations, faith and pain. How can this be? I mean, why do we even go to church? Is this just like a social gathering where we sing some songs and hear a cute little message and we feel better about ourselves? I mean, God, if, it's, if you're real, how can this be? And if you haven't been here during this series, that question, how can this be, has already arrived in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah and Elizabeth, an older couple, were told that they were going to have a baby, and they were old, and they said, how can this be? Mary, teenage virgin, is pregnant through divine intervention. How can this be? Then she's got to tell Joseph, her fiancé, that she's pregnant and the baby's not yours. How can this be? You see, this is not a new question. It's been around for a long time, but it's a very important one. And the scripture that we're going to take a look at today is actually going to give us some hope. And just out of curiosity, how many would you, you just like to have a little hope today? Let me see your hands. Okay, good. We're going to go for it. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't, look on the screen or look in the notes. We're starting at um, verse 57, where we're talking about the birth of John the Baptist. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she was the older woman that I just referred to a minute ago, She gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. 
That's usually when a child would get their name and be on the eighth day when they would go to be circumcised. You don't read it as stunning as this is, but this is actually a very stunning event where they're saying, no one, no one in your family is named John. What, what are you thinking? I actually feel emotion when I read this because three weeks ago on October 23rd, Kathy and I were in the hospital and we were in the delivery room of one of our very, very dear friends. Not my own daughter, but we have treated her that way since she was in junior high and kind of adopted our, her into our family. And she, she and her husband, um, Kevin, had their first child, Cohen Cram. And it became a stunning moment for us as we're holding the baby. They said, we have something very important to tell you. And we have given Cohen a middle name. And we're going to name his middle name Fields, which is my last name. This is the picture of me being stunned. Um, I didn't, well, it's also a picture of me with seven chins, too. I don't really, <laughs> what is that about? I just noticed that as I look up there. I'd prefer you not laugh at that, okay? Just, uh, but we didn't know what to say. Kathy and I were both, we were totally caught off guard. What an, what an honor. I mean, I think it would have been more honorable if they named his middle name Douglas. <laughs> you know, that would have been a little more personal. Uh, you know, <laughs> Kathy doesn't think so. But uh, go to the next picture. Cohen Fields. Cram. There it is. Pretty awesome, huh? But here's kind of what we were thinking. Are, are you sure? Are, are you sure you want to, have, have you really thought this one through and the ramifications, what it's going to mean to your families to give that middle name, our family name? And really, that's what we have here in this story. It's like, hey, should we double check with Zechariah? I mean, are, are you thinking clearly? Epidurals weren't created during that time, so maybe it was the pain that was, you know, she suggests this dumb name, John. No offense to the 108 of you in here who are John, but back then it was a dumb name. Okay, now, it's a wonderful name, wonderful name, but back then, you know, are you thinking clearly? Is it the pain? Do you have to go to the John? And that's why you're saying it. I mean, what are we doing here? Okay, now, if you remember a couple weeks ago when Jeff was teaching, Zechariah lost his voice. He was muted by God because he asked the question, how can it be? If you do have your Bible, just you don't even have to flip because we're still in John 1. Uh, verse 18, it's he, Zechariah, he asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. How can it be? It seems like a fair question, but for whatever reason, he was muted at that moment. So Elizabeth she actually gets a, a twofer on this one. She gets a double blessing. She's pregnant, and her husband can't speak for nine months. Okay, ladies, how would, would that be cool? How many of you, show of hands, that would be cool. Let me see. Yeah, some of you are like, okay, that would be. You know, I know my wife, she, she, when our first baby, I was just, I was obnoxious. You know, I would say things like, uh, you know, are, are you, you know, sh should, you, should you sit like that? Should you, should you walk, should you, should you jump on the trampoline? I mean, you know, should you put down that knife? I mean, I was just, you know, I was all, all over her. And so he's quiet. In some ways, I call this God's timeout. God puts him in a, in a verbal timeout. And then we return, verse 62. 
It says, when they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child, again, because he can't speak, he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Then, boom, immediately his mouth was opened. And his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill, uh, throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. I find it interesting that the last time he speaks before before the birth was, How can it be? Then he's muted for nine months. Then and for whatever, whether this was an act of obedience, that he went with John and not his own namesake, I don't know. But all of a sudden he can speak, and he goes from how can it be to words of praise. And that's what we have here in this, this next text, is what in some of your Bibles have a heading, will say Zechariah's song, or Zechariah's praise, or Zechariah's poem, but it picks up in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. So now these are his first words. Okay? The muted is gone. Now he moves into songs of praise. Because he has come to his people and redeemed them. If you have a Bible, just circle that word redeem. That's going to be a theme. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. Now, a horn of salvation is not like a... You know, that was a common Old Testament symbol of strength. Yeah, the, the animal's horns were, were kind of this expression of, of strength. So he's raised up a strength of salvation. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Jeff was talking about the Roman oppression. Those were the enemies. They were under the Israelites, the Jews were under this heavy Roman persecution, oppression, that they were waiting for a savior, a redeemer, a messiah. Salvation from our enemies, verse 72, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The covenant refers back to Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. You can look that up on your own, but it's the covenant that God will never leave them nor forsake them. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. There it is again, enemies, a lot of persecution going on. And to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. Remember a little bit earlier in Luke chapter 1, Jesus was not called a prophet of the Most High. Jesus was called the Son of the Most High. Meaning that he had equality with the Father. John doesn't have the same equality with God the Father. He's a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. In my Bible, I've circled salvation and forgiveness because they always go hand in hand. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun, that's a messianic reference, meaning the Messiah will come, the light will come, the sun will rise, meaning there will be a Messiah, will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child, John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Now, we'll see him a little bit later in in Luke. But there's a lot going on there. 
And what I want to do is just, you can see in your notes, I just want to highlight a few, I think, important truths that help us with this question, how can it be? So as we ask, how can it be, let's, let's take some things out of Zechariah's song, his praise, his prophecy. The first is this, how can it be that God has come to his people? If you look at verse 68, that's exactly what it says. He has come to his people. Now there is a big time fancy word for God coming to his people, and that word is what? Who knows it? Incarnation. Last service didn't get it. They, they didn't. Seriously. Not a sharp crew. Last service. Okay? All, the, all the Bible people come to this service. Yeah. Incarnation. Meaning God became flesh. God became human. That means incarnation. Verse uh, John 1, 14. The famous incarnational verse is this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. If you have notes, circle the word dwelling there. We're going to come back to that. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This verse, I love this verse in the message paraphrase. Okay, it's a paraphrase. It says this, The word, meaning God, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The God became human. Part of the triune God walked among us. Okay. And it's a very important theological truth for us to understand. Why? Well, let me explain with a story. For me, one of the scariest parts of fatherhood was um, teaching my daughter how to operate a motor vehicle. Uh, specifically a, a stick. Okay? Now, she's an extremely bright young woman, but she didn't grasp the, the delicate dialogue that takes place between clutch and accelerator, that one must increase while the other decreases, right? And because of that, we were jolted with a sequence of uh, quick, punishing whiplashes. Okay? <laughs> it was dashboard, headrest, dashboard, headrest, dashboard, headrest. And then we got out of the driveway, okay? And I can still remember occasionally she would look over me with these, these beautiful eyes and say, Daddy, how come when I drive you can't control your saliva? You know, and I would have to explain, well, sweetheart, Daddy's being whiplashed into oblivion, okay? And, you know, day after day we would do this. It, it was intense. There was anger and tears and yelling and pouting and... and she would also get emotional. And I, I can remember one time being, being mad, you know, kind of getting a little bit angry because I, I and she was mad because I raised my, my voice. And the reason I raised my voice is I, I told her I wanted to get your attention because there's that lady walking across the street that you almost hit. And here, this is exact phrase. Some of you that have done this before know what I'm going to say. I saw her, I saw her, okay, which is wonderful, sweetheart, that you saw her, but part of driving is avoiding hitting people, that's all, all part of it, and no matter what would happen during that lesson, I would, we'd come home eventually, and I'd go in the house, because I had changed my pants, and uh, my wife would meet me, and she would just tenderly look at me and say, Remember why you're doing this. Remember why you're doing this. And she was reminding me of what we know intuitively. 
that there are certain truths about life that can't be communicated from a distance. See, she wasn't going to learn to drive by reading the operation manual from the state of California. She was not going to learn to drive in a classroom. She was not going to learn the delicate intricacies of driving through watching a movie of people dying in car wrecks. She wasn't going to learn to drive from me standing on the sidewalk yelling directions at her, which I would never do because the sidewalk wasn't safe. Uh, The only way she was really going to learn those truths is if I got in the car with her. Does this make sense? I would be on the road with her. Good times, bad times, uphill, downhill, slight head injury, total concussion. You know, I I needed to be there beside her. That's the only way it works. That some truths can't be communicated from a distance. And clearly God understood this with us. That he understood if we were ever going to really comprehend his love for us, that he had to become up close and personal. See, the word didn't become word. The word became flesh. God came to us. Now, I put in your notes, this idea of the incarnation is wow. It is wow. But it's not new. Okay? It's not a new idea. All the way back to Genesis. If you want to you look these up later, Genesis chapter 3 is we actually find we're created in the image of God, and we see that God is actually walking in the garden, dwelling among His creation. So He's dwelling with His creation. Then sin enters the world, and God takes on a different type of form. You move to Exodus. He actually says this in Exodus 25, Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Other words the Old Testament uses, the tent, the tabernacle. It was to inhabit the presence of God. It was kind of this mobile sanctuary that would indicate God was there. You move to 1 Kings 8. You see God dwelling in a cloud above the Ark of the Covenant. Again, a symbol of God's presence. So here's what the Old Testament reveals. That God has always had a history of wanting to dwell with his people to come to his people, to be with his people. And then because of sin and darkness, the second thing we learn is that God has come to redeem his people. He's come to redeem his people. And you can see in your notes, I grabbed some of the verses from that long section of scripture that we just read. And in in this specific setting of Luke, these people, they were under the thumb of the Romans. They were under this strong oppression They were under this dictatorship. They were going through a lot of pain and turmoil. And they were actually expecting to be saved. They were actually expecting a Messiah. But here's the deal. They were expecting a military Messiah. Not a baby. Which is why so many people miss Jesus. And and actually still do. See... The Israelites, God's people, they were under this oppression. And being under oppression was not new. I want to, many of you know this in the Old Testament, you go back to uh, Exodus, where God uses Moses to rescue the Israelites. God uses Moses. Remember this? He talks to the Pharaoh, let my people go, the parting of the Red Sea, the plagues that are so awesome. And, and, And notice the word that is used here in Exodus 6, up on the screen or in your notes. Therefore, 
Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will what? Redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now, some of you are like, yoke? I hate eggs. What are you talking about? Okay, That word yoke is basically this, a, a headlock. A headlock that they couldn't get out of. That's what it meant. They were, they were just, they were, they were tethered, they were attached, they were imprisoned. And if you're, you know, some of you are going, okay, what does redeem have to do with anything today? Why do I need to be redeemed? I'm not a slave to the government. Okay, another message, another time. Okay, let, let me talk about me. I am a slave to my sin. Okay, that I am, I am. I am shackled, I am attached, I am I'm consumed. Now, God over there is a perfect and holy God. And there can no be, be no sin in his presence. And because I am chained and I am shackled and I am consumed by my own sin, I need to be saved. I need to be released. I need to be redeemed. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came, God in the flesh, came to unlock it, to defeat death, so that now I could be redeemed and have a relationship with God. So God not only came to his people, God came to redeem his people and draw them to him. And thirdly, God has come to fulfill his promises. Look what Zechariah said in verse 72, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. See, Zechariah is praising God because God was reliable, that he kept his promises, kept his word, not only the word of the pregnancy, but the word that there would be a savior. See, this idea of Jesus is, is not a new idea. I actually, this last year, I just finished writing a book called Jesus Sightings in the Old Testament. And I realize some of you are like, going to rush out and buy that because you want to take that on vacation. It's really, really exciting. But this whole idea of Jesus, this is not a new, he's been over the whole arc of the storyline of the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, you see pictures of a prophesied Messiah, Savior, Redeemer. One of these days, we'll, we'll do a series in here on Jesus in the Old Testament. I know you'll sit at the edge of your seat because it's really awesome. But, the, you know, the promises that we read about in the Old Testament, they're coming true in Jesus, in the New Testament, that he has kept his promise, fulfilled his promise. Now, let me give you one that will kind of be a mind blower, then we're going to get into your heart, okay? The one in Malachi 3, this actually is one, um, or when I was in high school, I called this Malachi. I didn't know how to say it. It was Malachi. Uh, the last book in the Old Testament was Malachi, the Italian prophet. Uh, but it, this, is, this is actually a, a promise of both John and Jesus. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who's the messenger? John. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Okay? That he, he kept his promises. He not only came to his people to redeem them, but he kept his promises. Okay? Now, that's exciting, but we're about to move to something even more exciting. I mean, really exciting for you in 2013. This is exciting, like hang on to your pancreas exciting, because you don't want to miss this, all right? Because you're saying, okay, so what? What does this have to do with me? Watch this. First, 
is that God is perfectly reliable. He's perfectly reliable, meaning this, he never changes, okay? He never changes. He, he, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't lie. There's no hint of darkness in him. He is good. He keeps his promises. He's forgiving. He's loving. He's not just universal loving like, oh, that's a pretty rainbow. He must be a God of love. No, he loves you. You're one of seven billion, and he knows everything about you. He's a God of love. He's reliable. It has been shown all throughout Scripture how reliable his character is. That's what we can bank on in the midst of, you know, why does this happen? He is reliable. But here's where some of us get lost. The second is this. God is totally unpredictable. He's totally unpredictable. And just because he's unpredictable doesn't mean he loses being good and loving and faithful. But he's totally unpredictable. If we learn anything from Jesus, again, Jesus is incarnate, God in the flesh. Jesus is God, man. You want to know the character of God? You look at the character of Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. If there's anything we can learn about God from Jesus is that he's totally unpredictable. The way he taught, the way he lived, the way he loved and who he loved. Totally flipped life upside down. I mean, think about the disciples. The disciples who were hanging out with him who followed him and watched him. They watched him heal people, turn water into wine. They watched him perform miracles. They watched him cast demons into pigs, where we get deviled ham from. Okay? That was, by the way, that was my first joke I ever told when I was 18 years old. First time I ever spoke was deviled ham. It's not even funny, but it's meaningful to me. So I'd like to just kind of pause there and go, okay, that's good. That was the beginning right there. Uh, you know, so Jesus does all this stuff. The disciples are watching it all happen. Then if you were to look at Matthew chapter 8, there in a boat, these seasoned fishermen and sailors, they get scared. They wake up Jesus. Jesus wakes up and he calms the sea and the wind. And here's what the disciples say about him. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? They had seen it all. They'd seen everything. And yet, who is this? I mean, I keep thinking I've seen it all, and he continues to blow me away. Friends, I think for most of us in here, our view of God is just too small. Most of us, if we're really honest, we want God to work in a way that we understand. I mean, if we're really honest, we want God to work for us. But at least we want him to work in a way that we can understand. We, we, want, we want God to work linearly like we do. A plus B equals C. If I A tithe plus B go to church, that equals C I should have a good life. Or if I, A, keep myself pure before I get married, plus B, help old people, equals C, I should have a good marriage. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe obedience is part of God's equation of blessing. But here's the truth. The closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize that I don't understand how his equations work. I just don't understand his equations because they don't work like my little finite mind works. They're confusing. 
they're unpredictable. You remember when you were a kid, like in seventh grade, and they would do those, those word problems? There was like math, but in a story. Like if Mr. Jones has to get his cookies to New York by 4 p.m., and he's in Chicago, and there's trains leaving every hour, what hour should Mr. Jones leave if his wife is riding a horse flipping pancakes? You know, you're like, I, you know I don't know. why. See, there are not easy answers to this, how can it be? Because God doesn't work in this linear A plus B equals C fashion. God doesn't work within the borders of my finite minds. I had an aha moment several years ago. And I was a youth pastor for 30 years. And so I used to think I knew how to create environments for spiritual growth to take place. Some of you were in my youth group over the years. And I knew that if we had these songs and we did a little bit of drama and you had a fun game and then if I could teach in a way that if I could get kids to laugh a little bit, I could slam truth down their throat and they wouldn't even know. And if I communicated this way, then at the end, God would boom, change a life. And I would just be like, here I am, your humble servant. You know. And so it was back to school program on a Wednesday night. I'll never forget it, the biggest crowd we'd ever had. We'd been promoting it forever. Kids start coming through the doors. I challenge kids to bring their friends. Everybody's showing up. The program starts. The musician breaks two strings, stops playing. We had a video queued up. The bulb burns out. We don't have a backup. I think, no big deal. I got a great message. I mean, I got a great message plan. I think it's so good that the Holy Spirit would go, good job, Doug. Nice message. Okay, it's that, it's that good. I'm about four minutes into my message, and about in the middle of this crowd, there are, kids are all sitting on the floor, there's a ninth grade boy who, um, I'm not exactly sure how to say it. I'd say it how my mom would want me to say it. Um, he passes gas. Okay, he passes gas. Now, pause for a minute. If somebody passed gas out loud here with a bunch of adults, we would go. <laughs> right? That's exactly what you... <coughs> you might even elbow, but you'd be okay. Not with teenagers. It doesn't work that way. They don't have the maturity to do that because they're, they're fearful that everybody around them will think it was them. So now all of a sudden, chaos breaks out in the middle of this talk. Like, oh, girls, oh, that wasn't me, it was him. You know, they're all pointing, and it's like, oh, no. Like, let's just close in prayer and go home, okay? <laughs> like, maybe the worst night in the history of youth ministry. And I am so depressed. And afterwards, this girl named Sarah comes up to me and says, hey, Doug, I've been, I've been coming here for six months, and tonight, I felt God's presence. You know what I wanted to say? No, you didn't. It was that kid that you felt. It was the rumbling from that kid. It wasn't, that was not God's presence. And then I just had a little conversation with Jesus afterwards. And I felt like Jesus said, Doug, you don't have me figured out. I don't need your songs or your drama or your games. I don't even need you. Your speaking's not that good. Okay? Sometimes you get in my way. 
I can work the way that I want to work. And ever since then, I've just kind of had this idea that, you know, we play church and we try to create these moments, but God is unpredictable, okay? That God doesn't need a song, doesn't need a message. God works in all kinds of crazy ways. And the fact that he's unpredictable, it bothers a lot of us in here. Because many of us in here, we want God to make sense to us. But you think about it. Go just to the history. I mean, obviously we can't think of all of them. But just begin to think about how many ways God just did something totally unpredictable. That he would use Moses, a guy who stutters, to be his spokesperson to the most powerful leader in the world to say, let my people go. That doesn't make sense. He's unpredictable. That God would choose circumcision to communicate his love for his people. Where did that idea come from, okay? Was that like a Trinitarian brainstorm session where no idea is a bad idea? Just throw it out, Holy Spirit, you know, God. I know. Let's have them cut some skin off, okay, to show them that I love them. I mean, that is weird, but that's God. I mean, who would have predicted that God would enter humanity through a teenager, through a virgin, a teenage virgin? That the Messiah that everybody wanted and was waiting for would show up as a baby. That's unpredictable. That in order to defeat death, someone has to die? I mean, this doesn't make sense. And when it doesn't make sense in our finite minds, we try to impose boundaries on an infinite God. And I want to say to you, okay, he's totally reliable. Totally reliable. He's proved himself for thousands of years. But he's totally unpredictable. But here's the good news. He's up close and personal. Okay? He's up close and personal. That he's always been drawing himself near to us. See, some of you in here, you've kind of missed, you've, you've missed something when it comes to church and Jesus. And you've, made it, you've made it about religion. And, and I know somebody because I have too many conversations. You're actually trying to be a good person and climb your way to God. That's what religion is. You're trying to work your way to God, but it's, it's like one of those things you see at 24-hour fitness where you, you're just climbing, but you're not getting anywhere because that's not what it's about. It's not about you working your way to God. The real beauty of the Bible is that God has been passionately pursuing you, that he has been racing after you to fill you up, to dwell in you. He pursues us in order to dwell in us. If you want homework, and you know, who doesn't? You know, everybody loves homework. Just go online, find a Bible dictionary, and just look for the words, lives in you. Okay, just, just go to the New Testament and see where all the verses about God living you. Let me give you an illustration. It's not in your notes, but up on the screen. In 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who what? Lives in you. Go to Romans chapter 8. And Christ, what? 
lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, say it with me, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit. One more time, living within you. This is mind-blowing, friends, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. But it's consistent to what's happened from the very beginning. God has been about dwelling with his people. Whether it be walking in the garden or in the sanctuary or now with his spirit dwelling in us. See, why I want you to get this so bad is I want people to live with an expanded view of who God is. That God is bigger than you think. So when you say, how can it be the God in you smiles upon you, looks at you with eyes that communicate love, and it's almost like he gives you a wink. Like, I got this. Trust me. Just follow. I, I got this. The image that I love about the bigness of God is in the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure many of you know this. It's a children's story from C.S. Lewis. It's most famous, but um, it's not just a children's story. If you haven't read it, you should read it, read it because it's, it's deeply profound and deeply theological. And in this, this land of Narnia, there is a lion. And the lion's name is what? Aslan. And Aslan is the Christ figure. And there's these three kids that enter into Narnia through the wardrobe, and one of them is, is Lucy. And Lucy has stumbled on Aslan before. But in the second book, called Prince Caspian, she sees Aslan again. And as she sees Aslan again, there's this short little conversation that I want us to walk out of here with. Okay? It goes like this. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one answered he, Aslan. Then she says, not because you are? Like, not because you're older? And he says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Friends, that's a beautiful picture. That every year we grow, we find Jesus bigger. See, Jesus doesn't get bigger. Jesus doesn't get more powerful. He's reliable. Same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. What's unfortunate for many of us that are quote-unquote Christians, we've been Christians for a long time, sometimes people that have been Christians the longest make Jesus the smallest because we assume on him. We box him in. We, we think we've got him figured out. And instead of living fearless and courageous lives, we live small and faithless lives. So this week, as a community, here's my challenge, not only to you, but to me as well, that we would live with more amazement of who Jesus is. And like Zechariah, we might say, instead of how can it be, we would say how big you are. That we would move our how can it be to how big you are. And I wish with all of my heart I had an easy, simple answer for those of you that are saying how can it be. I don't have easy answers. All I can do is point you to a Jesus who wants to get in the car with you and go on a journey with you through the highs and the lows. That he will never leave you 
nor forsake you. I promise it'll be quite a ride. Not predictable, but totally reliable because he dwells in you. Let's pray together. Jesus, I beg you that lives would be changed today, not through my words, but through your spirit. And the thought of you wanting to dwell within us is just mind-blowing. And I know there are many of us here who are living like you're out there somewhere, but we're not living like you're in our lives. May we be people who live with the knowledge and the awareness of the filling of your spirit. And may we reflect it in how we follow you. We're humbled that you love us so well. And we want to move courageously to follow you. So may we be people who move from how can it be to how big you are. Would you accept our songs and prayers of praise as a reflection of how big you are? And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.